How should Britain respond if the US declares war on North Korea? NATO's international rescue for submarines? When the chips are down and there's a submarine on the bottom, you have to have the process. And how spectators become competitors at the Invictus Games. For the inaugural Invictus Games, I wasn't actually injured, so I watched that on TV when I was out in Afghan. is now a real possibility. That's the assessment of the Royal United Services Institute on the current situation between North Korea and America's President Trump. Rusi's report, Preparing for War in North Korea, examines how a conflict might unfold and its likely consequences. It's been written by Professor Malcolm Chalmers. I think the UK response to an outbreak of war would depend critically on how it started. If uh, this was a result of North Korean aggression, then it's very clear under the UN Charter that countries have a right to self-defence and the right to call on others to assist them. So in those circumstances, if South Korea and the United States call for British assistance, I think the UK, along with most countries actually, uh, would, would be prepared to support them, certainly politically and potentially militarily. If, on the other hand, uh, the war was started by an American preventive attack, designed to disable the North Korean nuclear program long-term, but not in response to a specific threat, uh, then I think it would be much more difficult, particularly if the United Kingdom had been given no significant warning and had, had there been no consultation with the UK. In those circumstances, I think the UK uh, would want to uh, take a rain check for a little while, actually, to think, well, you've just told us about this. We need to, you need to explain to us why it was necessary now, why it could not have waited. Uh, and indeed, we, we'd want to know, I think, in the UK what the South Koreans and the Japanese, the countries like to be most affected by North Korean retaliation, would think, and what our Commonwealth allies, particularly Australia and New Zealand, would think, and, and what our, our NATO allies, NATO, uh, France and Germany and, and so on, what, what they thought. So we, we'd want to take a bit of time to think about it. And I think the British government would be bound to be aware that any deployment of UK military forces would require parliamentary approval because this is not a circumstance in which the UK itself is under attack. Uh, it's not something under a UN Security Council resolution. It's something which is a bit more discretionary. So I think Parliament would have to be involved. And I think it would be hard to get parliamentary approval for a strike uh, if uh, the war had started as a result of an order by President Trump. Can the UK live peacefully with this ongoing threat of war? Well, clearly it can. We are living peacefully with an ongoing threat. I think that's, uh, in a way, the most likely scenario is that in the end, the Americans will not be prepared to take military action. And five years from now, North Korea will have an ICBM capability, have nuclear weapons able to, to, uh, to attack uh, North America or indeed the UK. Uh, it's not a suicidal regime, uh, but it's not a a regime with whom we'd be very comfortable either and we will have to live as we've lived in relation to Russia and China now for decades with the possibility that countries with whom we don't always get on have that capability to destroy us and vice versa. 
Uh, and the, the deterrence is not the solution to everything. It doesn't mean there are not risks. There are risks in living today with a nuclear Russia, uh, but uh, we survive and, and do everything we can to minimise those risks. What should Britain be doing now? Well, I think, first of all, the UK government needs to be doing a lot more to understand this situation and to think about different contingencies and to talk to the other governments who are thinking about this, talking to the South Koreans at a senior level and the Japanese and the Americans and understanding a fast-moving situation, talking to the Chinese as well, very importantly. Uh, the UK government at the moment is, has got a real bandwidth problem. So many resources are being devoted to Brexit. Uh, there's now a major uh, defence review taking place, which is taking up quite a bit of time in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, but despite all that, uh, I think this is actually, of all the international crises we're facing at the moment, uh, this is in many ways the most serious in terms of the real possibility, not probability, but possibility that something could go wrong and we would be faced sometime in the next couple of years with a, one of what would be one of the most uh, significant conflicts of the post, post-war period. That was Professor Malcolm Chalmers talking to Grace Pascoe. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Christopher, how likely do you think war is with North Korea? It's possible if, if by miscalculation. But in this report, I have not read, nor have I heard, so much rubbish coming out of one of the finest defence institutes What do in you Europe. take issue with exactly? OK, the rules have changed. Uh, it he says, it depends how it started. We have the rules have changed all about that. Um, Let's how America would explain what they intended to do. There's no time to explain. That was one thing going... I was going to ask you about because he did say that UK would have to take a rain check if America took some kind of preventative action against North Korea. And I was wondering exactly how long that rain check could be. Oh, good 35 seconds. Um, he talks about uh, how we've lived very easily, though, with the Russian and Chinese nuclear capability. Totally different, totally different circumstances, totally different time frame. What we have here is a new superpower, a superpower because it's got a nuclear weapon and because we're not quite sure what to do about it because we're not sure how he would do about it. And then he says, oh, you've got to go and talk to the South Koreans and the, South, and, and the, and the Japanese. Well, this is absolutely nonsense. They're being talked about. No, but having said right, that... No, it's just it, one point. You don't, when, you don't do deals with your chums. What he's, what, if he really wanted to be interesting, go and talk to the North Koreans not the South Koreans. But we know what they're in it is a valid for. point to make, is it not, that Britain should be thinking, and probably is thinking, what it would do in the event of conflict with North Korea. You have two options. One, you have to decide um, if you're scared and how scared and why you are scared. And then you have to decide whether you support your main ally, who is the only other side in this, and whether you support them in the United Nations Security Council. I suspect... That's already just, been done. Just briefly, Christopher, I mean, we all assume when we're talking about this in this context that you're talking about some kind of bombing. But of course, there are cyber attacks that be could be carried out and maybe already are. Uh, you, yes, you've got all sorts of levels of response. But the point is, you, you, you come down to the basic thing. Nuclear weapons, for example, which is this was all about at the moment. Nuclear weapons there are deterrents. Deterrent has failed if the other guy has already used it. And that is the decision that the Americans have got to, to, to make. 
And what, that is a decision we can't do anything about. And what do you think uh, the next stage will be in this standoff with North Korea? I think the next stage has got to be when there is perhaps a public nuclear explosion by the North Koreans on the end of a missile, perhaps, for example, into the Pacific Ocean. And then that is the big decision and how Trump has to respond to. But the British have already probably, I suspect, made up their minds of where they are on this and they're not with Trump. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Now, submarines are designed to be covert, their technology top secret. But when it comes to the world of submarine rescue, there is a very different approach. In Turkey, more than a 1,000 personnel from nine countries have taken part in Exercise Dynamic Monarch. Ali Gibson reports on how these relationships could help save submariners from the ocean depths. Hatches closed and Nemo, the mini-submarine, is ready to begin her descent. She's an SRV, or submarine rescue vehicle, that's part of a British, French and Norwegian system to save trapped submariners. The NATO submarine rescue system can get anywhere in the world in 72 hours, dive to 600 metres and transfer injured submariners under pressure to a portable hyperbaric chamber. Commander Ian Duncan is the NSRS programme manager. Submarine population in the world is growing. To operate submarines safely uh, requires a lot of skilled personnel. It requires investment in resources to safely manage it. With new nations operating submarines, uh, the possibility of submarine accidents in the future uh, is always there. For Exercise Dynamic Monarch, nine countries have come together to practice every phase of a rescue, from locating the distressed submarine, first intervention by parachute special forces or Navy divers, and then rescue efforts and medical care. You don't need to look far back to understand why this is important. In 2000, an explosion sank the Kursk, a Russian submarine. Some of the crew had survived the initial blast, but despite the relatively shallow waters, all hands were lost. The disaster changed things. The international community shed the usual secrecy surrounding submarines. They started an open dialogue on how to save trapped submariners. Commander Gennario Vitagliano is from the Italian Navy and Bill Orr from Ice Merlo, an international rescue alliance. Open source for everybody, meaning uh, open possibility to save all life at sea. We don't have flag at sea, we care about life of uh, our submarines, our uh, friends. When the chips are down and there's a submarine on the bottom, you have to have the process, you have to have the procedures, you have to know how to work on another country's ship, how to bring everybody together. And those things have been really demonstrated very well in this exercise. Turkey last hosted a submarine rescue exercise 17 years ago. Since then, much has changed. This exercise launched from Aksaz naval base near Marmaris has gained the attention of the world's press. Russia isn't participating, but there were words of caution from the head of NATO's Maritime Command, Vice Admiral Clive Johnston. I think sometimes we get ourselves into a position of painting the Russians as the great enemy who we're going to go and fight. And we really mustn't. The Russians are not our enemy. We are uncomfortable about things the Russians are doing. There is a lack of transparency about what they're doing. My job as a maritime commander is to make sure all our components of the maritime are strong and effective and usable. But it is absolutely not to get into a position that we're taking on the Russians in a hostile, warfaring type way. Control, control. Submarine rescue isn't cheap. The systems cost tens of millions of pounds. 
but it is a life insurance policy, and Turkey is keen to prove her worth as an ally in the Eastern Med. And Ali Gibson is here now. Ali, tell me more about the Russians. They weren't there, as you said, but were they invited? Well, there was a bit of confusion about this. Um, we had a press conference at the naval base. They were, they were very keen to get a lot of media attention for this exercise. During that press conference, everyone wanted to ask about Russia. Where's Russia? Why aren't they here? Um, six years ago, they were last on this exercise. It's had two iterations since then, and they haven't come for the last two. Um, one of the uh, vice admirals told us, oh, yes, they have been invited. And he was corrected by his press officer about an hour later, saying, oh, no, actually, um, they, weren't. they weren't coming this time. So. <laughs> So um, a little bit of confusion there. What was your interpretation of it, Ali? (sighs) It's difficult because um, the message they're very much trying to put out from this is that um, when it comes to the world of submarine rescue, it's an international community. They've got 40 countries that are part of this organisation called Ice Merlo. They all talk to each other. They all liaise about rescue. All the hatches that on NATO submarines have the same sort of imprints that they can be rescued. Um, whether what Russia is exactly doing at the moment in terms of why they don't want to participate in these exercises, we're not sure. It could be because of the change in the world situation. Can you shed any light on that? Uh, the Russians at the moment, we think, we think we're told, um, they've got three uh, conventional submarines operating in the, in the Mediterranean. They're operating from their base facility off Hammamet, Tunisia. In the past three weeks, all their uh, submarines have been actually operational. And they're operational, of course, because they're standing off the war in Syria. Mm. Uh, Ali, um, tell us a bit more about your experience reporting on this, because not many people get the opportunity to dive in a submarine. What was it like? It was an absolutely incredible experience. We dived down to 100 metres. We're in a mini submarine, sort of a small one that takes about uh, 15 personnel. And it basically mates onto the top of the, um, the t- mated onto the top of a Turkish submarine, and you have this moment where they are basically using science, using the differential pressure to drain the water between the two. Um, but when you're going to open that hatch, that's a really nerve-wracking moment because you are 100 meters Hope they below. Got it right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are 100 meters below the surface. Um, but it's just such a a fascinating capability. It can go down to 600 metres in really rough sea states in minus 20 to up to plus 40. And it's just got a huge range of capability. And you said there. it's what, seven, did you say 17 years since, or seven years, I can't remember, since Turkey last hosted this kind of... Yeah, so the last time Turkey hosted a submarine rescue exercise was in 2000. That was the same okay. year of the Cur- as the Curse disaster. Obviously um, a huge amount has changed since then and these kind of submarine rescue capabilities have really come on. Alright, Ali Gibson, good to see you. Thank you very much. Now, three Years ago today, the RAF began its bombing campaign against the Islamic State group in Iraq and Syria. Figures from the MOD say it's carried out more than 1,500 airstrikes, killing more than 3,000 extremists. BBC correspondent Quentin Somerville has spent six days in and around Raqqa in Syria. I'm walking through Raqqa, old city. I've seen a lot of destruction at the hands of the Islamic State and the coalition over the past few years in the battle with IS. Almost nothing quite like this. And the interesting contrast here is, when you see the troops on the ground, Syrian Democratic Forces led by the Kurds, they are a light paramilitary force. I'm just walking up to some guys now. Johnny. Hello, hi. And they have uh, AK-47s. Some of them are in flip-flops and not much else. To contrast that with the destruction here, which is obviously coming from American artillery and 
coalition airstrikes. It's really quite dramatic. Well, Syrian and Kurdish troops claim to have retaken 90% of the Islamic State's stronghold at Raqqa. They say there may be fewer than 400 IS militants left in the Syrian city. Let's talk now to Fawaz Jajaj, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Good to speak to you today, Professor Jajaj. The Syrian Democratic Forces mentioned by Quentin Somerville in his report are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, include Kurds, Arabs, Muslims, Christians and Yazidis. Who will take control of the city once IS has left? I think you're asking a very difficult question because even though it's a uh, very diverse fighting force, uh, basically the Kurds are really the major potent and skilled forces within this particular uh, I mean, unit. The reality is uh, the Kurds are doing most of the important fighting. Uh, the Kurds are the Americans' most trusted allies. Uh, they have basically incurred major uh, casualties over the past one year. Uh, and the morning after is going to be very difficult because surely the Kurds have paid uh, with blood and sweat and they would expect the Americans at least to uh, provide something back. And that means autonomy for the Kurds on the Turkish-Syrian border. Mm, now, um with the advance, uh, with the, the flattening of Raqqa, uh, what does it actually all mean for President Assad? Well, I mean, I, I think what we... I'm glad you, you mentioned the battle for Raqqa because we have not spoken about the civilian casualties. The battle for Raqqa has been one of the most basically costly for civilians. Hundreds of civilians have been killed. I mean, the U.S.-led coalition has been uh, really carpet-bombing uh, ISIS in Raqqa because the ISIS uh, fighters and combatants have taken civilians as human shields. So basically it's street to street, house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood mm -hmm. and this has exacted a major, major casualties on civilians. Most of the civilians have left. You have about 10,000 civilians. The reality is the battle the morning after is going to be extremely difficult because you have the Kurds, you have the ethnic uh, Sunni Arabs, you have the Syrian forces, the Assad forces, and his allies, Hezbollah and the Iranians, and you have Turkey. Uh, and the battle now is raging all over Syria for the morning after. They're trying to really gain and seize territory in order to maximize their bargaining position after the defeat of ISIS. I heard one commentator saying that this bombing that you talk about, which, of course, civilians have been caught up in, sadly, um, was actually the lesser of the two evils. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, look, whenever you have hundreds of civilians and children and women killed, very, very painful. And human rights organizations and the United Nations uh, have been very critical of the U.S.-led bombing. Uh, in particular, since the coming to power, President Donald Trump, he has empowered the military to take action on their own. Um, whether you're talking about Mosul or whether you're talking about Raqqa, I mean, civilians have been caught between Iraq and a harder place. The rock, which is ISIS, using civilians as human shields, and the bombing, uh, the, the U.S. that bombing, which has killed, I mean, hundreds of civilians. So the civilians are the main casualties of this particular war. And one final point on civilians. The reality is, this is a Sunni city. And even if you defeat ISIS, you don't want to antagonize 
and alienate the Sunni communities. After all, ISIS and Al-Qaeda play on this particular card. They say, look, we are the protectors and the guardians of the Sunni community. So the killing of civilians have major, has major implications for the morning after. How do you secure not only Raqqa, but the Sunni-dominated areas of, of, of Syria, which had been mm. occupied by ISIS. You mentioned the Kurds. Uh, let's talk briefly about the Iraqi Kurds. Those living in northern Iraq voted overwhelmingly in favour of independence for the Kurdistan region in this referendum this week. Uh, what do you think the consequences of this vote will be? The consequences are, are tremendous, not just in Iraq. Uh, you have uh, geostrategic uh, tensions now are escalating, uh, Turkey and Iran and Iraq on the one hand and the Kurds uh, in Kurdistan. Uh, the airports in Kurdistan now have been basically closed as a result of the decision by the Iraqi government. The Iraqi government is escalating, threatening military action, and here also Turkey threatening not only Kurdistan but even the Kurds inside Syria itself. And that's why what's happening, we keep talking about ISIS and the brutality and the savagery of ISIS. But the reality is the reason why ISIS has been able to survive as long as it has, it has been able to manipulate geostrategic and ethnic and religious tensions in the region in order to survive. And the referendum in Kurdistan plays into the hands of ISIS because it uh, exacerbates and aggravates the geostrategic and ethnic and religious mm. tensions in the region. Professor Jajaj, when you paint a picture so chaotic for the future for the region, how long do you think Western allies will be involved or should be involved? Well, I, I think we're talking about at least a decade. The Americans have made it very clear they are not leaving Iraq as they did in 2011. I take it even after we defeat ISIS, and we were talking about a year, give and take, um, ISIS is going to mutate into an insurgency, into a terrorist organization. This is going to be very bloody indeed. And now everyone is preparing for the morning after. How do you fight an insurgency? How do you prevent ISIS from biding its time and coming to bite everyone as it did between 2011 and 2014? So even though we should celebrate the fact that ISIS is losing, uh, the morning after the dismantling if the Islamic caliphate Khalifa does not mean that ISIS will not be with us for many years, not only in Iraq and Syria and Libya, but also um, uh, ISIS-related attacks in Western countries, including here where we live in the United Kingdom. All right. Fawaz Jerjez, Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics, thank you very much for your time today. The Invictus Games are underway in Toronto. Forces Radio's Richard Hutchinson is there and we can talk to him now. Uh, hi, Richard. How's it going? Hi, Kate. Well, you join me in Toronto looking out over the skyline. There's a bit of cloud in the sky today, which is really important. I mention that because for the start of the Games, it has been a heat wave here. We expected it to be about 17 degrees. It's been up to 30 and 40 degrees. And yesterday, in the middle of the cycling, the weather suddenly changed. A breeze blew in and suddenly the cyclists were moving slightly faster with the wind behind them. And finally, it's the sort of weather that athletes would, would want to compete in, where it's not so hot. Uh, Yesterday was an important day because the cycling was moved from Vancouver Island, which was flooded earlier in the year, and it moved to High Park. And on the way there, it was a bit of a bus ride. We were on a bus with some of the athletes from Team UK, and we got chatting to Flight Lieutenant Nathan Jones. Cassidy Little asked him about his journey to the Invictus Games. 
for the inaugural Invictus Games, I wasn't actually injured, so I watched it on TV when I was out in Afghan. And then, yeah, I had a, a fateful night where I had a, an incident in an aircraft on the way into Afghanistan where I hit the roof of the, uh, of the plane, subsequently breaking my back. And from there, it's been a, a long road to recovery and then managed to compete last year in, in Orlando and then, and then make it for this year as well. That's incredible. I've actually often spoken to people and said, you know, there will be guys in theater right now watching this and not knowing that they will take part next year. You're an exact example of that. Yeah, pretty weird scenario. <laughs> and then obviously me competing last year, then all of my friends and colleagues were there. They're watching it when they're out on ops. So um, the, the guys that I was watching it with in Afghan. So, yeah, weird, weird scenario. Uh, Richard, the Games head to Sydney next year. Do we know yet what will happen after that? Well, there is a lot of talk about what will happen after Sydney. And Prince Harry, when he started the Games in London, said that this isn't something that's going to last forever. The feeling we've had this year, because each Games has been very different. I've been lucky enough to report at all the Games. Uh, London was obviously in the Olympic Park. Last year in Orlando, a very small area, ESPN Wide World of Sports in Orlando, which was... Very good because all the athletes can get very easy from one place to another. A very different feel to the games this year. They are so spread out and lots of travel on buses from one location to another that the momentum has built and there is a real different feeling to each Invictus Games. And as we're speaking to the families and to the athletes, the people taking part and the spectators, there really is a feeling that this is something that that needs to continue. Um, They would like it to continue into the future, but it remains to be seen. I don't think a decision has been made yet about what happens after Sydney next year and that's happening in October next year so a long trip for many of the athletes and it'll be good each year I speak to the Australian team brilliant supporters they have a mascot called Skippy which is a a kangaroo they carry everywhere with them it'll be great to see those supporters not having to travel with all the jet lag in Mm. their home country because the Australians when they get behind the their athletes they are some of the loudest in the crowd best bit for you so far of all the games you've been to Richard do you know, it, it, it sounds a bit strange, but it's not so much the games. It, it's like the journeys on the coaches with the families and hearing the stories behind the athletes. That's what it really is all about. You, you hear some inspirational stories. And the thing the athletes tell us is, I couldn't have got to this stage if it wasn't for the families. And to sit there when the games are taking place, maybe sitting in the sun and just chatting to the families, walking around a golf course with someone who's watching their loved one, take part in a competition and you hear the stories behind their journey here that that's really special and um mm. and it's, it's just such a great place to be and the atmosphere everybody is behind every athlete there is no rivalry between countries everyone wants their country to win a gold mm. but the person who comes over the line last gets a bigger cheer than the person with the gold medal all right richard hunchinson at the invictus games in toronto thank you very much enjoy the rest of your time there now let's go back to 1987 Well now, a touch of apprehension in the audience, not surprising because this next act is one that roars its own approval. Not that it needs to, the word is out that it's one of the most thrilling displays in this year's tournament. The Royal Signals motorcycle display team, the White Helmets, are now in their Diamond Jubilee year. The first and best known motorcycle display team in the world, their performance is a highly skilled one. After 90 years of entertaining and thrilling crowds, the Royal Signals motorcycle display team, the White Helmets, will be performing their tricks for the last time on Saturday. Christopher Lee, uh, because of army cuts, seems a shame. 
why. I mean, I, I never, I almost wondered why they ever went past the. It was quite out. a sight to behold, Come on, though, it's wasn't a circus it? Act. It's a circus act. It's no longer... In the 1950s, they were brilliant. 1950s, every other country with motorbikes followed them and copied them, etc. I mean, you call it sort of disparagingly a circus act, but it was an imp- it's impressive what they did. It is. And so every Sunday morning down at, uh, in, in one of the Sussex towns, about a 1,000 motorbikes get, and they do, do similar things. And they do the equivalent of sort of 650 Norton wheelies. No, I mean, it's this sort of thing you look and you say, well, OK, but it, it's no longer... It's not the Red Arrows. It's not breathtaking. You don't think anybody's going to get hurt. It's not the people drunk, jumping out of the back of aeroplanes or anything like that. It's just one of those things. It's moved on. And it's somehow, to my mind, it makes mm. the army seem uh, not very modern. You say it's, it's moved on. If the army were to devise some kind of display or, or show to attract new members, to inspire the public, what do you think it should be? Afghanistan. That's what the army is about. And that's what the public... It's a, new, it's a new public for this sort of thing now. And that's why it's, it's an untouchable thing. And that's the importance of it. I, I think they've been brilliant, but time to rev up and go, quite frankly. Same for us. We have to go right now. We're out of time. Join the conversation. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to our podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.